Hi, and welcome to Recovered, a podcast from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in Dallas, Texas, and known by many as Maggie's. My name is Stephanie, and I am a recovered alcoholic on staff at the Magdalene House. Each week, I have the pleasure of conducting a live interview with an alcoholic woman in recovery for the participants who are currently in our Next Step program. Whether you're in recovery yourself, contemplating giving it a try, or just supporting someone who is, we are so glad you're here. Thanks for listening. All right. Good morning, you guys. I'm Paige. I'm an alcoholic. I think I know most everybody on today, but it looks like we do have some new faces, so welcome. I am so honored and grateful to be able to introduce Whitney this morning. Um, I've known Whitney for years. Uh, Whitney was actually my sponsor when I lived in Kerrville, Texas. She's Zooming in from Kerrville today. And she, I feel like I have just never seen a person help so many women. Um, That's what I feel like me and anyone that knows Whitney always says that we're just constantly amazed by um, how much she goes beyond convenience for the next woman and her patience with working with alcoholic women is also something that I admire and am always aspiring to be more like because I know that she was very patient with me and so I'm just super grateful and excited to get to introduce her and for you guys to hear a little bit more about her story and um what led her here. And so Whitney, thank you so much for coming on and I'll hand it over to you. All right, thank you, Paige. So my name is Whitney and I'm an alcoholic. I first went to treatment in March of 2005. I didn't really understand that I was an alcoholic. I didn't I didn't think that I knew people that were alcoholics. I didn't know anything about AA other than what I, you know, the terrible misrepresentations you see on TV and and movies and stuff. Um, I thought it was just some depressing people in a church basement and that alcoholics were the, the guys under the bridge with the paper bag asking for money. I didn't know that you know, alcoholics were the people working in our banks and hospitals and everywhere else. And so I, I, I knew that I (laughs) drank more than other people only because I knew that I was hiding the amount that I drank and um, how often I drank. I hung out with, with, with people who were hard drinkers or partiers or, or whatever. So I wasn't pretending that I didn't drink at all. I just do a lot of pre-drinking on my own and then meet people at the bar and, 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 uh, you know, try to seem like I was drinking like everyone else. But, you know, it turned into, uh, you know, I was drinking every day. I was drinking at work. I was drinking in the morning. I knew that I drank more than other people, but I didn't understand what alcoholism was. And um, a big thing is, is I thought I did not understand the, the no choice um, aspect of it. I thought that I was just choosing to do this and, and I was young and single and I wouldn't, I wouldn't do this if, if I were married or had kids or, or something like that. 
I had my first big consequence in early 2005, which was I had just gotten a new job. I lived in Dallas at the time and I, I worked, uh, I had corporate jobs then and I got this really big job and I ended up getting fired from it because I was showing up drunk, you know, after only working there a, a month or so. And they weren't invested in me enough to really handle it. They were just like, we don't know what's going on. We don't know if this is a pattern for you or whatever. So I got fired and that freaked my family out. So they were like, you're going to this place. I I went to a treatment center and, and I, I went and I participated in all those things, but without realizing it at the time, I was basically spent my 30 days there disqualifying myself. I I heard everyone else's consequences and they didn't match up with my unmanageability. So I thought, I don't, I'm not one of you. I don't belong here. I've never gone to jail. I've never gotten a DWI. I've you know, all these other things, but that was really just a matter of like those, those things just hadn't happened yet. I should have had my first big first step experience when I left that treatment center because um, I was no longer physically dependent on alcohol. I was sleeping like a normal person eating three meals a day. I mean, things that I hadn't done in a really long time. I felt better physically than I had in years. And like I said, I went there and I participated and I went to the step classes and all that. And it was not my intentions that, oh, as soon as I get out of here, I'm going to go back to drinking. But the night I got home, I did. I, I drank that first night and that should have been a big eye opener that I no longer needed the alcohol physically. I felt good physically, mentally, all those things. And the biggest thing is that was not my intention, but that's what I did. Um, unfortunately, that did not hit home with me. And I really spent the next nine years in and out of treatment centers, in and out of hospitals, psych wards. You know, I went from that big corporate job in Dallas to not being able to hold the graveyard shift at a convenience store because I, no matter how hard I tried, I could not stay sober to save my life. I tried all sorts of crazy things to make myself stop drinking. I was still trying to look at it logically because logic and reason worked in a lot of other areas of my life, but alcoholism is a very illogical disease. And as many of you have experienced, consequences don't keep you sober. Rewards don't keep you sober. No matter what I did, I just couldn't stay sober. Toward the end of 2013, I was just just beyond miserable, just could not imagine living another day like that. But I felt that this does not work for me. 
I'd go to meetings, I'd gone to treatment centers. Um, but the truth of it is I had never really and truly worked the 12 steps honestly, thoroughly to the best of my ability. So I, I did start going back to AA and I got a sponsor and I don't know, I was just sort of checking all the boxes. I got super involved in AA at the time. I was going to multiple meetings a day because I had nothing else to do. I didn't have a job at the time. And honestly, the, the, the fellowship kept me sober for a little bit. I was volunteering for every little service position I could. But again, I wasn't really working the 12 steps, applying these spiritual principles in all my affairs. And I was just, I was kind of a miserable dry drunk. I was staying sober, but only by keeping myself very, very, very busy until I would fall into bed at night to wake up and have another sort of crazy, not very enjoyable day. But I thought, hey, I've figured out how to stay sober. Obviously that didn't last too long. I got a few months out of that, which was kind of the most I'd ever had outside of treatment. And my sponsor that I had had told me, had told me like, you, you need to go to this place for 90 days. It's, it's intense. It's very 12 step based, whatever. She was like, I don't think you'll ever really recover from, from this if you don't go do something. And I just, I couldn't imagine at the time I, I did finally get a job in, in that little stint of sobriety. Um, it was a job I loved and I just thought, well, I just can't leave all this behind to go somewhere for 90 days. I don't know what I thought, um, was gonna, was so great about my life, but it was just, it, it looked better than it had in a long time. I had hit rock bottom so many times and continued to, dig deeper, um, that this really wasn't my rock bottom. Um, I wasn't happy. I wasn't able to maintain sobriety. Um, but it wasn't my rock bottom. And that was sort of a misconception I had that probably a lot of people do. It's like, Oh, well, someday you're going to hit such a rock bottom that you're going to get sober. And the truth of it is, is, is I, I fought my sponsor on this and, and, um, I'd really never done anything that she told me. Um, and so finally I, I said that I would just call the place and I just thought that it wouldn't work out. I thought they wouldn't have a bed. Um, I wouldn't have the finances, whatever. And it's just one door after another opened until I was like on a plane there. And I, I really couldn't, um, couldn't believe it. And, um, I wasn't happy to be there, but I was stuck there. And, um, I just finally was out of options. All my ideas, my best ideas failed every single one of them. So I thought, well, while I'm here, I'm just going to do what they tell me to do because I was very miserable something, something changed. I, I got to that other side of 
the cycle of addiction and that had never happened before. Like I said, I had had some, some dry time before, but I'd never recovered. I'd, I'd never, the mental obsession didn't go away. I was always just kind of sitting on my hands, you know, trying really hard not to drink. And I think the biggest thing that happened was I didn't realize that I was spiritually sick. I thought I believed in God and that was fine. And I sort of ticked off the first three steps every time. And it really took someone sitting down and showing me that my actions were extremely agnostic, that just because I believed in God, I wasn't relying on God. And so that kind of hit home and then kind of came my spiritual journey where I was saying, oh, God, please let me have this, this uh, spiritual awakening that they talk about. And I, I wasn't feeling anything. Nothing seemed different. And then um, I just started, they told me to practice integrity and everything. And I really just started doing that because they told me to. And if there were dishes in the sink, I washed them. I didn't try to find out who they were. If the trash was full, I took it out, even if it wasn't my job. I didn't ask for recognition or let everyone know that I did it. I was just sort of doing these things because that's what they told me to do. And, and in the end, that's, that's what ended up enlarging my spiritual life more than anything. Because when something shifted, it was all of a sudden, I cared what I knew that I did. And I cared what God knew that I did that kind of made all the difference. And then honestly, things just started to fall into place and it wasn't a struggle anymore. And I didn't know that was possible. I thought that it was always a struggle that every day you woke up and made the decision, I'm not going to drink today. And that just never worked for me. And um, since then, I mean, and, and I, I had no reason to think it was going to be any different this time than it had been every other time in the past nine years. But come this March, I'll have seven years sober. And it's honestly been the easiest seven years of my adult life. I'm not saying it doesn't take work and discipline and all that, but it's just, it's, it's not something I have to struggle with today. Awesome. Thank you so much. Does anybody have any questions? We'll open it up. I guess I will start with the, the questions. You mentioned, you know, not relying on God um, and your, your actions being agnostic. Can you touch on the self-reliance versus God reliance and, and what that looks like? Because I know when I came to the program and I would hear self-reliance. I had no idea what that meant. <laughs> so sure, yeah. And and that's kind of with, with a lot of things with it. I, I really try to with sponsees break things down because we tend to have this AA lingo that everyone talks about, but it's like, what does that really mean? And um for me it was, you know, you would always hear about self-will run riot and and that sort of thing. And and I just I thought I, I just didn't think that that was me and and that that's what really helped is that people wrote it down for me and um, weren't afraid to hurt my feelings or sort of put me in my place or whatever and show me. It's like, you know, you can say you believe in God and all that, but the fact of it is, is everything I did 
was based on what I thought was best. And I mean, I, I wasn't just running around being a heathen at all times. I mean, trust me, I was causing a lot of harm and, and stuff like that. But a lot of times I really did have the best intentions, but they were my intentions. And, you know, especially in hindsight, I mean, first of all, I have a very alcoholic mind and I was, I was insane. I wasn't, you know, if I walked down the street, you wouldn't say that lady's crazy. But if you look at my decision making, it was really, really insane. I, I did crazy things to try to keep myself from drinking. And it, it just, it was, the solution was right in front of me all the time. It's just like rely on God. But even when I prayed, I basically told God what to do let this happen. Don't let that happen. You know, and I kind of just wanted it to be like magic. And, um, it, it honestly never occurred to me to say, God, what do you want me to do? How can I be of service? And so once I started doing that, they would say things like, you know, um, God's will, not your will. And that was something I used to question all the time. Like, well, how do I know if it's God's will? And I'm, you know, it's not just my will and I'm convincing myself it's what God, you know, all those things in early sobriety that seem so complex that I was really just overanalyzing. And I, to be honest, I, I started, um, kind of copying people around me, like some of the women who worked at my treatment center who had sobriety and, I believed we're practicing these principles and all their affairs and they were happy about it, you know? And so at that time in very early sobriety, it was easier for me instead of to say, well, is this what God wants me to do? Or is this what I want to do? It was easier to look at a physical person I knew and be like, okay, what, what would this person do in this situation? And then, you know, I just, I did that for a while until it became the way that I did things. And then again, that, that residual battle I had in my head sort of dissipated and, and it was more, I wasn't having to, when faced with a decision, it wasn't such a struggle anymore to, to try to decide what was Whitney's will and what was God's will. My, my spiritual life, my understanding of my higher power, all that had grown. And so, like I said, I just did it enough to where it became the way that I did things. And so when faced with a decision, it was a lot easier to say, you know, it would be easier if I did this, but, but I really think this is what God would want me to do. And just putting that step in that I never had before, which was the asking God, what do you want me to do in this situation? And being able to to listen and um, not just tell God, this is what needs to happen, because that's not God's will. Yeah, I love it. Thank you. I did want to talk to you too about step four in the inventory uh -huh. process. I know that you said you had a big experience with this, and it kind mm -hmm. of kind of ties into this self will and everything. Do you mind sharing on? on step four and sure. process and your experience and what step <laughs> four is too, because I know we have some new people on here who don't have any idea what that is. Okay. So step four was usually about the time I bowed out of AA and <laughs> would, you know, kind of 
go and, and go off and do my own thing or whatever. Um, I had attempted some four steps before, which is the inventory we write. Um, uh, I had, I think that really, and again, this, this ties in with the self-will is I just sort of decided what was important that that's completely self-reliance. It's like, I, I didn't, I didn't necessarily searching fearless inventory Things would come up that that bothered me or that I'd been holding on to for a long time. Um, but I would think, well, that was a long time ago, or I'm over that, or that doesn't really have anything to do with my drinking. And the truth of it is, I had no idea why I couldn't stop and stay stopped. So I really didn't need to be baking the decisions about what was important and not important. And um, something that I really always like to touch on is I wasn't because a lot of times people think that they're for the most part doing what they're supposed to be doing. I wasn't purposely defiant. I wasn't out. Like, Nope, I'm not doing that. I'm not telling you this stuff, whatever. It was more just my solitary self-appraisal that I decided what was important and not important and things like that. And so it was really never very thorough or searching or fearless. Um, so when I was in this treatment center and when you made it to the fourth step, I mean, that's all you did was you sat there for a couple hours a day and wrote inventory until it was completed. So I went all the way back, you know, all the way to childhood and just put everything on there, whether I thought it was important or not because that was the big thing. It's like, I don't get to decide because I am not able to stay sober. And the people that are guiding me in this have shown that they are able to stay sober. So a big thing that I noticed in my forceps, especially in, in like the sex inventory, which I always thought, I don't know, it, it really just doesn't have all that much to do with sex. It's more about like, I went all the way back to my little, like, you know, seventh grade boyfriend that all that means is that like we held hands while walking down the halls, you know what I mean? But is what I was able to see was the patterns. And if you were to ask me, I would have said that I had dated all different kinds of people with different backgrounds or different interests. And that's not what's important is what I found was that I showed up the exact same way with that kid in the seventh grade all the way till, you know, I was in my thirties at the time when I got sober. And that was sort of mind blowing for me that that many years had passed, that many different people, changes in my life, growing up, living in different places. I showed up the exact same way in every single relationship. And the same went for my other inventory, no matter what the situation. And I could look at it like all these different things have happened in my life. But as what I found was that I showed up the exact same way. And it's a little frightening, but at the same time, it's like, okay, that's something that I can, I can work with, you know? I mean, the whole point of, of writing inventory is that you then, you know, the, the big part is the fourth column where you see where your mistakes were 
and then you can make changes because if you're just writing it and saying, I, I don't know what happened and not doing anything different, it's just kind of a, a waste. You know, you're just writing stuff on paper. But if you can find where, wow, this is this is how I handle this situation every time. And then that's where the, the fear comes in that was so great. And I got to look at, okay, these are my fears. This is how I handle them in the past. And this is what happens. And then this is what God would have me do. And so that turned out to be such a great tool. It's like, okay, this is, this is how I've handled every situation in my life, which has kept me drunk since I was probably a senior in high school. And these are things that I can do differently. And so when I have something that I can look at that's tangible, that's like, okay, this is what you did and this is what you can do different, then I can, I can choose to take those actions. And then, I mean, it, it really changed everything. Thank you. One of the questions I always ask the ladies whenever they do a fist step is, did you learn any new information about yourself? So I'm going to ask you the same question. After doing your writing inventory and doing your fifth step, what new information did you learn about yourself? Well, I, I was taught to do a, an extended third column. And so, which for, for those of you who, who haven't done a four step or, or aren't there yet, the third column is, is where you put sort of what it affects. And, and the book has a list of, you know, personal relations, sex relations, pocketbook, whatever. And an extended third column is where you kind of expand on that, like, like how it affects your personal relations or sex relations or whatever. And I find that I almost find as much in that third column as I do the fourth column. Um, because that's where, you know, I had a sponsor who's always told me like, let the darkness out. And so I, I try to tell my sponsees that even, even if Whitney wouldn't really outwardly say, this is how I feel or or this is who I am, or this is how you should feel about me. Like, what does my ego say, you know, that I'm the best at this and, and, and you did me wrong and, and all that. And, and it's kind of like, it's a little gross, you know, to look at, but I do, I did find a lot of things about myself. It's like, these are these crazy expectations I have on people and I don't even necessarily express them. And, and that's where it's kind of, to me, to think of other people the way I would want them to think of me, that's, that's really a big challenge. Um, you know, we all grew up with the golden rule to treat others the way you want to be treated, but that's kind of like in our nightly review, it says, were we kind and loving, you know, and, and kind is our thoughts, but, uh, or kind is our actions, but loving our, is our thoughts. And I can be kind to people all day long. I'm not quick tempered. Um, I don't really lose it on people. So I can be really friendly and, and everything, but I might have some very unloving thoughts going through my head. So that's where I try to kind of think of others the way I would like them to think of me. And then of course, in that, in that fourth column, it's, it's real easy to look at the things that have happened to you, you know, but it's like, didn't I place myself in this position and here's how I retaliated or here's how I handled or reacted to it. And, you know, really getting to look at, I don't get to mention the other person at all. I don't get, there's no justification. I don't get to say, 
okay, well, I did this, but it was only because they did X, Y, and Z. You know, it's like, I did this. And that's, that's not what a woman of integrity does. I relate so much. And I think uh, Paige does too, because we were both like nodding our heads and laughing. But yes, I love the, the gross feeling. Because <laughs> there's freedom that comes after that. So does there anybody, is, there is. anybody have any uh, questions? Go ahead, Michelle. Whitney, it's Michelle. I'm Katie, sponsee. <laughs> Remember me? But yeah, anyways, hey, I'm good. Um, so my question for you is, it's about step, I have two actually, but the first one I really want to ask you is in step 11, what do you do to, to change that, the prayer and the meditation and improve your spiritual contact on a daily basis? How does that look? How did that look in the beginning? And how does it look today? In the beginning, I think I told you, I was really I was really lost because I had just learned basically that I was spiritually sick. I thought I was fine in that area. And so then I felt like, like such a a newbie. Like, I don't know what it's like to rely on God. I don't even know where to start. So I started with just saying, asking God to have me rely on him. And I wasn't getting very far with that. And so, you know, I, I talked to some of the people at my treatment center and realized that, I mean, I was a real newborn in all of this. And I had to go back even further, like baby, baby steps. And I just had to say, I just had to be real honest with God and just say, I have no idea how to rely on you. I don't know what that looks like. Please show me. And I would say those prayers and nothing earth shattering happened when I would ask God these things, but it was more about my actions that I did the whole other 23 and a half hours of the day. And that's when I told you sort of, I, I started practicing integrity and everything. And, you know, at meetings, I would hear people say things like, Well, I was out of town on a business trip and I thought, you know, I could drink and no one would know because nobody knows me here. But then I thought, but I would know and God would know. And that never resonated with me. I was like, so what? Like, God knows all kinds of crazy stuff about me. You know, that's not a deal breaker. But it, but the thing of it is, is I just kept acting as if, and I know a lot of times that gets kind of taken out of context, the whole fake it till you make it. But I, I do find a lot in acting as if, because it's like, this isn't what I'm, I'm not feeling this right now. This isn't necessarily what my gut's telling me to do or what I really desire to do. But I've certainly proven that my ideas and my desires and my thoughts don't get me anywhere but drunk again. So I'm just going to do these things, even though I don't want to, even though I don't feel like I need to, even though I think they will have absolutely no bearing on my sobriety. I'm just going to do them anyway. And then so much grew from that. And I started to care what God and I knew even if nobody else knew it. And then 
I feel like that really built my relationship and my understanding of God. And, um, uh, to this day, like every, every, every day I ask God to continue to show me how to enlarge my spiritual life. And to be perfectly honest, you know, it does get stale sometimes it kind of becomes routine and rote. But one thing I've never done is I've never just stopped. I've never thought, Oh, this is kind of a waste or I don't have time or whatever. Like I've kept up my daily disciplines and I still pray and meditate every morning and night. And it doesn't look like some big, deep meditation, you know, but I at least take the time every morning to make that contact with God, invite him into my day, ask for his direction and for him to reveal to me anything he wants me to know or do differently and try to listen in that. And then, you know, at the end of the day, I, I, um, end it with prayer as well. And so, like I said, sometimes it can get a little routine, but then, then I'll try other, other things. Um, you know, it's different for everyone. Uh, you know, some people are really big into devotional books or, you know, finding an intention for the day. Those are things that are kind of that you get to make to personalize. Um, a lot of the program, I, I feel we need to do what the big book tells us because that's what we know that works. But your spiritual life is sort of, you know, where it gives you permission to come up with your own concept and see what works for you, you know, and, and always keep exploring. So that's what I do. Like, like more recently, I've kind of gotten interested in, um, like, like, uh, astro astrology and the stars and stuff like that. And I kind of look at that as, as an extension of God, that God created that. And it's something else for me to sort of get interested in that brings me closer to God. So, you know, just kind of find what interests you. Awesome. Thank you. The second thing I had, the other question that I had for you was if you could give me some of your tips for sponsoring or things that you have found that you keep in mind that your go-tos for sponsorship or that, that kind of thing. Um, so I remember, first of all, I never thought that I would sponsor anybody. To begin with, I didn't think that I was qualified and that I just couldn't do that. But I learned very quickly. I mean, first of all, it was presented to me that it's not an option. People were there for me to guide me through the steps. And that's something I do. It was really just fear that held me back. But once I, I got to, I came to Kerrville to go to sober living and at meetings, they would ask who's available to sponsor. So I got to a point where my sponsor told me, you know, to raise my hand. So I did. And then, you know, the first person came up to me and, and said, will you sponsor me? And, and I said, yes, but I freaked out and talked to my sponsor and thought that she was just going to have to guide me all the way through it. But the truth of it is you realize how much you've learned when, once you start sponsoring somebody, you know, because they're looking to you. It's like, okay, so, sort of the same thing I said I did with, with, women who worked at my treatment center, I could, they could say like, look, you've been able to stay sober three whole months. I've never stayed sober more than three days. So just show me how to get to 
like 30 days would be amazing. And I get that now because when I was in early sobriety to hear someone with multiple years, I mean, that's great, but it just, that was not achievable for me. I was never going to get a whole year without drinking. And my biggest hope, I know it sounds ridiculous, but it's the truth. When I was at treatment this last time, seven years ago, was like, I hoped that I could find a way to stay sober most of the time. Like I knew that I would like twist off here and there, you know, like have some bad weekends or whatever. But if I could stay sober like 85% of the time, then I could probably be a functioning person. That I mean, that was really my biggest aspiration. And, you know, it's just crazy to me that it has turned into this long, but I mean, I, I had never had like six months over. I'd never had that. And so you sit down with somebody and, you know, you just start with step one and what your experience was around that. And you let them have their own experience. And, and then when they have questions, it's just, the thing of it is, is, is I'm not having to remember things that I learned in a classroom or read in a textbook or something like that. It's like, I'm just going on my life and my experience. And so I can tell them, this is what worked for me. And, you know, for someone who struggled to get sober for so many years, there's pretty much anything that they can think of or ideas that they have. I've tried them and I can tell them, here's my experience with that. And that's really the best thing. I I don't, try too hard to give them the technical AA term for whatever. It's like, when I did that, here's what happened. And this is what it resulted in. But when I did this, this is what happened. So I I would say personal experience more than anything. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Anyone else? Okay. I have a question. Paige, you know, has mentioned multiple times about you going past convenience for the newcomer. What does that look like? And can you talk about that? And on the subject of service? Um, so, I, you know, that's another thing that was really driven into me um, when I got sober is that it's not just about sponsoring, you know, service, service is, is what, you know, I mean, it tells us in the book, nothing uh, so much ensures our sobriety is working with another alcoholic. And, and I tell sponsees that all the time when they're very newly sober and they're not in a position yet to take someone through the work because they haven't been through the work, but there's tons of things that you can do for people. It doesn't require money that you don't have or resources that you don't have. It really just requires willingness and time and sharing of your own experience. Cause even if you only have a week sober, there's someone out there who's, you know, today's day one. So, uh, I think a lot of it was just, if I'm capable of doing it, then I'll do it. And I think early on, I don't, I'm sure other people struggle with this, but it's the whole fine line of where am I helping? Where am I enabling? You know, and kind of getting that balance, but I just, I, I know what I was like when I was drinking and struggling to get sober 
and not being able to stay sober and times where I wasn't even trying to be sober. I mean, I know how I showed up and what it was like for others around me. And just like anyone else, I can get really frustrated when, when someone's not taking suggestion and they're continuing to relapse or whatever, but I just always take it back to, this is what I would want someone to do for me. I've been where they are in, in some form or fashion. And, uh, I can at least, you know, offer what I have. Paige said that I was very patient and I definitely, definitely try to be, um, but just like anyone else, I can get frustrated with people. I got, I got real frustrated with Paige before, but you know, you just keep doing it because people did it for you. And that, that's what helps me stay sober more than anything. I mean, I love my sponsees and every time, you know, I meet with a sponsee and walk away, I'm glad that I did. I had a great experience, but I don't always love sponsoring. I mean, that's just, that's just my honest truth, but I love helping a wet drunk, you know? I mean, it's like, cause I've been there so many times and it's just like, I have this secret, you know, that, that can help you get to the other side. And, and that's what I was always looking for. It was right in front of me, but I just didn't know how to utilize it. And so once I did, like I said, once I got to the other side of that cycle of addiction for the first time, I have remained to this day willing to do anything not to go back. Awesome. And so I want to show other people like, this is all you have to do, you know, and then you don't have to live like this anymore. You don't have to drink anymore. That was another thing people used to say in meetings was like, you don't ever have to drink again. And I thought, well, that's not very enticing, you know, but I didn't know the freedom that, that, that it could come with it because I'd always just kind of been dry, you know, for little spots at a time. So once I, I really learned how to recover from these symptoms of alcoholism, yeah, I, I want to share that with whoever, because it, it, it's not only does it make a huge difference for them, but I'm also very aware of the ripple effect and how many other people, not just that they can turn and, and help other women, but that the difference it makes in their family and just, it changes the whole trajectory of their life. Love it. Thank you. It sounds like you have a very beautiful life today. Do you mind sharing with us the greatest gift that recovery has given you? I do have a great life today. And I think it's because I just, I still love what I do. I, I don't get burnout. I don't get resentful of it. Um, I, I'm still, I'm very involved with, with sober living. And that was something that, that's the reason I came to Kerrville. Um, was to go to sober living. I didn't want to go to sober living. I didn't think I needed it. I thought I've got, cause, cause I was able to make it to my late twenties before I even went to treatment for the first time. So I thought, you know, I have life skills and stuff like that. I mean, I, I just, I thought that's what sober living was. And I, and, and a lot of it is, but you know, I, I finally, I, just sort of thought, well, you know, they haven't steered me wrong for, for these three months. So I'm going to take suggestion. And I committed to going for 60 days. I'm still doing sober living. <laughs> I went to sober living. I ended up managing um, the house I was living in. And I saw 
how important it was. You know, I thought that um, it was really just sort of a step down from treatment and, and probably not all that necessary for me, but, but I realized that so many people, it's like, this is where you grow that chosen family and that sense of community and um, camaraderie and where you make genuine friends, not, not your running buddies or, um, you know, we have a choice in who we get to spend time with today. You know, before we had to find people that were willing to put up with, with what we did. And generally they were people who, who did the same thing and it wasn't necessarily healthy relationships, but uh, no one else really wanted to hang out with me. Then you get to a place where, you know, you're, you're sober and healthy and I get to build healthy relationships. And that was something that I just, I, I never really had before. I had really great people in my life, but I, I couldn't be present for them. If I wanted to be a drunk, I had to find other people that wanted to be a drunk or whatever, whatever the situation was, you know, I just sort of had to conform to what was around me. And then you go to sober living and, and a lot of people go in thinking, I don't like women. I don't like other women. Um, I'm not friends with them. And, and really it's, it's because a lot of times the other women were competition when we were, uh, you know, active in our, our addiction. And this is where, um, we get to find meaningful relationships and, and I mean, yeah, some of it is life skills. Some people have never washed dishes before, made up their bed, you know, stuff like that. But it's really about the sense of community and, and everything that I realized how much it, it changed, especially a lot of the younger ones that um, I think I told you yesterday, you know, so many people, their um, addiction hits them early on now that they kind of go from their parents' house to treatment centers to sober living and, and they don't have those experiences that I did early on in my life before my, my disease got, um, got out of control. And so it's, it's really just such a beautiful thing to watch, um, people change just their whole attitude towards women and living with other people and forming relationships. Awesome. Thank you. We're getting to the top of the hour. Does anybody have any questions before I ask the wrap up question? All right. Well, my final question is, if you could leave us on one takeaway, or if you don't hear anything I say, hear this, what would that one takeaway you would want to leave us with this morning? Um, so my favorite line in the book, um, and, and this has been since I first got sober, and this is what I, I think I I try to live by today at the, at the top of page 20, it says our very lives as ex problem drinkers depend on our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. And, um, that's something I try to live by today that no matter what's going on in my life, if I get bogged down in that, that's all, you know, it's all about perspective and that's all I'm going to see. And that's all I'm going to focus on. But if I'm constantly turning my thoughts towards others and how I might help them, 
it gets me out of my own head. It ensures my sobriety. And it's something that anyone can do. Anyone can be of service to another alcoholic. Awesome. This was so great. Thank you so much, Whitney. Thanks for having me on. Have a great morning. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. That was awesome. Bye, Paige. It's good to see you. Good to see you too. Bye. Thanks, Whitney. This podcast is from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. You can learn more and support our mission at magdalenhouse.org.